The Real Investment Show. It is uh, our first day back in our brand new studios. So uh, if there's some glitches or bugs along this morning's show, well, it's because we're learning how to use all new equipment. So uh, we do have our uh, technical support team in studio this morning as well. So you may see some strange people walking around, but that's completely normal for this type of uh, type of a Monday morning. So, um, all right. So again, after being off for a week, lots of stuff to get caught up on from last week. So Again, as we, we kind of go through these things, um, we've got a lot of big issues that are coming up here for the markets, uh, in particular over the course of this month and as we move into December in particular. So, uh, again, you know, there's some certainly some things to be concerned about. However, as we've talked about before, this doesn't necessarily mean that you need to sell everything and go into cash right now because... Again, these markets can remain a bit irrational, and we're seeing a lot of this at the moment. In fact, if you take a look at what happened in the NFT market, um, as an example, which is the non-fungible tokens now. So these non-fungible tokens are where people are now selling um, you know, these digital prints of things. It's like digital art, as an example. Um, which is now being sold and people are buying this using cryptocurrencies, et cetera. Uh, and again, this is a market that's really kind of exploded here over the last year. And we've talked about incidences of this uh, from time to time, from pet rocks, uh, digital pet rocks, <laughs> to uh, cyberpunk, which was the image that was sold last week for half a billion that's billion with a B, not half a million, half a billion dollars. So again, just a massive spend in terms of what's going on. But again, this is not, and again, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Somebody spent the money for this piece of digital art that they think will have a higher future value. That's why we buy things. But the, the real point here is that this is the type of speculative activity that you see when you have too much liquidity in the markets and people have a disconnect between the value of money, right, and the risk that they're taking. And we see this, of course, in very late stage bull markets. And again, and again, you know, there's and it's not just the non-fungible tokens, as an example, which is a sign of kind of excess in the market. We're seeing it a lot of places, right? We're seeing it in the type of stocks that are being bought. We're seeing stocks with real no fundamental value being run up, you know, thousands of percent in price. We're seeing, you know, this show up in cryptocurrencies. Um, you know, a new cryptocurrency that, you know, just a few weeks ago was, you know, a fraction of a fraction of a penny. Uh, Shibu, of course, now is has, has risen, you know, thousands of percent over the course of just the last few weeks. In fact, there was a person that put $8,000 into the Shibu coin, and now they're worth $5 billion. So again, just, you know, this is where, by the way, if you had $8,000 investment turned into $5 billion, you sell everything. <laughs> So, you know, you really no reason to hold it any longer at this point. You sell it and, and move on. But again, this is kind of, again, just signs of this excess, things that are happening in markets that are real outside the realms of normality. And again, we see it in the in the IPO markets as well. We see I've seen a record number of IPOs come to market this year. We've seen SPACs uh, earlier this year. They were the hot rage of companies kind of using a different way to become public and, and rather than going through the traditional 
uh, initial public offering, which requires a lot of filings, et cetera, with the SEC. They take an existing public shell, back a company into it. Now that company's publicly traded. So we saw a huge issuance of SPACs coming out earlier this year. And then IPOs, of course, have been record record stock buybacks. We were we are we are set right now to exceed a trillion dollars in buybacks by the end of this year. And starting today, as as a matter of fact, uh, and again, markets are pointing up this morning as well. So kind of expect this bull market to continue here a bit more because the window for corporate buybacks actually opens back up today. So we're now far enough through earnings season that a lot of these companies that were reporting earnings, they they get into a, a blackout period for doing buybacks. That window is now opening back up for November and December. $90 billion worth of stock buybacks now expected through the end of the year. So that's support for asset prices, all this, right? All this speculative activity is supportive for markets. And again, lots of liquidity in the markets right now. Investors have no real fear of risk at this point. So markets are set here potentially to go further. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't have a pullback or a correction in the near term. Not That doesn't mean that at all. What it does mean, though, is that you know we are at the point in the markets to where risk is something that is now set aside. We, we no longer think that there's any risk to investing, right? If I buy it, it's expected that it'll go higher. So really, what's the risk? But that's part of the bullish sentiment. So that does suggest that you know again, you know while there's certainly things to be concerned about, right? I mean, earnings are are, are coming in. They are okay. Right. But profit margins are going to be under pressure going forward because of inflation, because of higher employment costs. That's going to be impacted next year. Then you've got the Fed cutting liquidity. You've got the Fed potentially hiking rates two to three times next year. And, and as I was saying earlier in, uh, in the first segment, the Fed's the, the markets are expecting the Fed to hike rates three times next year. The tr- you know, traditionally, the markets under predict what the Fed actually does. So if the, if the markets are predicting three rate hikes, it is certainly well within the confines of reality that the Fed could wind up hiking four or five times next year because the markets always predict less than what the Fed's going to do, either on rate hikes or rate reductions, either way. So again, certainly things to be very concerned about. But the most important thing is, is that the new series of Yellowstone starts November the 7th. And that's the only thing you really need to worry about at this point. So just saw an ad up on television. <laughs> been waiting for the next season to come out now. It's been uh, in hibernation because of the, of the pandemic shutdown. So coming back November the 7th, Sunday. Yellowstone. But anyway, the point is, is that moving into the year, you know, I'm getting a lot of emails right now, you know, suggesting it was like, you know, I should not be more in cash at this point. Should not be more, um, you know, conservative at this point. Got an email yesterday as, in, in, as a fact, and it's like, I'm mostly cash at the moment. You know, and, and this is this is kind of this hard environment, right? Stocks are going up. They are very expensive. They're very uh, overvalued in terms of virtually every measure. Uh, they're extended on a lot of different fronts. But again, you know, there's a lot of bullish sentiment behind the markets and there's lots of liquidity and professional managers are trying to play catch up for the end of the year. So as you know, there's a lot of kind of bullish tailwinds at this point supporting asset prices. Does that mean that you just invest money and then not worry about it? Of course, that's not what it means. You know, that's not what that means at all. 
you need to be aware of the risk and you need to be paying attention to it because this is one of those things that you wake up one morning and the markets are down four or five percent in the course of a couple of days. And, you know, if you have too much exposure to that market, you're going to be down more and then you're going to make panic driven decisions and you're going to sell at the wrong time and make all the wrong mistakes. So this is why we talk about these risks. But at the moment, you know, it is important to understand that the bullish bias behind the market is higher and that push is going to continue to push stocks higher, at least in the near terms. Now, having said that, as I said, this doesn't preclude the markets from having short-term corrections or pullbacks. Markets aren't going to go just straight up, even over the next two months. Um, it is not uncommon for stocks to have a pullback on you know, the, the week or so ahead of Thanksgiving. It is not uncommon for the markets to rally post-Thanksgiving. And this is because there's fewer traders in the markets. So volatility tends to pick up. As we get into the second week of December, Markets typically pull back because mutual funds have to do all of their redemptions for the year in terms of capital gains, distributions on interest and income. So those mutual funds have to sell in order to make those redemptions to investors. So again, very typical that you have a pullback in the second, third week of December, just from those mutual fund distributions. Now, uh, again, this is just kind of how the market works and how the market cycles. And so, again, you know, markets are very overbought here in the short term, I was, as I was saying in the first segment. Markets are very overbought here. Volume has been very weak at this point. Um, you take a look at the number of stocks trading above their 50-day moving average. We're barely above 60%. So, again, very weak internal breadth as well for the market. So, again, there's not a lot of commitment to this market, which suggests that yes, markets can continue to rise here, but you're going to have bumps along the way. So if you're trying to figure out how to get invested, don't go jumping into the markets today. Markets are going to be up about 170 points on the Dow this morning. Doesn't necessarily mean that you go jumping into the market today. Wait for the markets to be down, you know, one or two days in a row. Um, when that happens, you know, then put a little bit of money to work here. Um, again, you know, not surprising to have, you know, a correction in the second week of December, shortly after, uh, after Thanksgiving. Um, you know, going into Thanksgiving week tends to be volatile. Not really understanding what, you know, this is because investors don't really know what to expect from Black Friday. That's, you know, so we're all kind of waiting for those numbers. So a disappointment there could lead to a correction in the markets as well. And again, when I'm talking about a correction, I'm talking about a day or two. And you can use that opportunity to put some money to work through the end of the year. But again, this is just kind of understanding the rhythm and the flow of the markets and, and understanding that, you know, you know, while there's certainly a lot of things to be concerned about, there's political risk, there's geopolitical risk, there is, uh, you know, market risk from a variety of different uh, positions. While there's all these things to be concerned about, it doesn't mean that you should be sitting in cash. Markets are up 22% this year. If you've been in cash this year, that's six years of return. Sorry, that's a four years of returns. If you were expecting a 6% rate of return annually for your portfolio, that's four years of returns basically that you've lost out on by being in cash. And this is something about an article coming out on here in the next you know, week or so talking about being in cash can be just as devastating to your financial outcomes as being invested during a bear market. You know, we can we can be in cash to avoid the bear market that's that's coming, right? We're going to get a bear market at some point, right? 
and we can be in cash waiting for that bear market to come. But the problem is, is we can lose so much of the gains on our capital that the bear market, avoiding it, doesn't really help our financial outcome. And we have to be able to learn how to navigate both bullish and bearish markets, and that's what we do as investors, and that's what we do here at RA Advisors. Be right back after the break. Don't go away. Normally, you don't know what goes on behind the scenes, but we're still learning new equipment this morning, so bear with us a bit. So, Brent, do you call it... Uh, so, coming up, we've got uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Right. And, of course, the much-vaunted weekend. Mm -hmm. Is that, for you, is that this weekend or next weekend? A vaunted weekend? Well, I'm just saying we all look forward to the weekend. But if I was going to say, what are you going to do this weekend, what would you... What would you... You would think that was this Saturday and Sunday are coming up, right? Well, yes. Right. Yes. But if I said next weekend, would you think it was this Saturday, Sunday, or the one after that? No, it means the same. It means the same to it's you. It's the next one that's coming. Well, all right. But if, I, but if I'm mid-Wednesday mm -hmm. and I say this weekend, that means this Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But if I say next weekend. Then it's. Uh, so it depends on yeah. the day of the week yeah, that we talk about, right? It's all about perspective. Exactly. Well, uh, it depends on your age, actually. <laughs> so. There was a chart out this morning talking about this weekend and next weekend and how people view it, which is simply that now it's really dependent on your age. If you're in kind of in the older age bracket, above 50 or 60, it's, uh, you know, next weekend, as Brent was just talking about. Say, what are you going to do next weekend? That means this weekend coming up. And, uh, of course, if you're younger, they, they believe more in the this weekend theory. So... <laughs> There you go. So again, it's just one of those things where, you know, it's just different age groups, but, you know, dialects are changing and, and attitudes are changing. So I just thought that was interesting this morning. Um, outside of, of what's been going on, of course, is a lot of things that are occurring in, in the markets currently is that we've got a lot of new theme investing, right? And we've written about ESG investing, environmental, social governance investing. And this is this is one of those things that, you know, really is something you want to be very careful of um, when you start talking about ESG investing. Now, there's a, look, there's a lot of people that want to buy ESG funds. They want to try to help the environment, right? So I'm going to invest responsibly. I'm going to buy stock in companies that are ESG responsible. Let me enlighten you on a couple of things here. Buying stock in Apple has no impact on the environment whatsoever because all you're doing is buying shares from somebody else. So in other words, Brent owns some shares of Apple and I buy some shares on the market. So I buy Brent's shares of Apple. I give, I give cash to Brent. Brent now has cash in his portfolio. I now have Apple shares in my portfolio. That has nothing to do with Apple. So ESG investing has nothing to do with changing the environment. All we're doing is swapping shares for cash. That doesn't reduce carbon emissions. In fact, you know, you could probably drill down to the fact that we're using electricity to cause these transactions to occur. So actually investing in stocks is actually non-ESG responsible if you really want to dwell down into it. But the point is that just buying an ESG stock or an ESG fund or an ESG ETF doesn't do anything for the environment, right? We did this back in the 90s. 
uh, in the late 90s, we talked about this before, in the late 90s, it was all there was a whole movement against investing in sin stocks. And there was uh, people that were pushing up against these companies and these mutual funds and, and other providers of investment saying, you know, hey, you know what? You know, we don't want you investing in these sin stocks. No, no, no gambling, no alcohol, no tobacco, no pornography. You know, don't want you investing in any of these companies. And of course, mutual funds wanting the capital, they complied. And so they stopped investing in these funds. Over the course of the next couple of years, app, uh, alcohol, tobacco, firearms, they did great. These companies did awesome. Right. The, the, you know, the what was expected to be devastating to these companies by not having all these mutual fund managers investing them turned out to be the best performing assets. And of course, as soon as that occurred, people quickly began to, to invest back in those companies. Why? Because investors want performance over time. Right. They're looking for what's performing. And so they begin chasing those stocks again. And then fund managers go, well, we can't keep just, you know, losing out. So they started buying those stocks again and 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 very rapidly and not surprisingly the whole sin stock investing movement quickly dissipated well here we are again repeating history as we know it as esg stocks environmental social governance now this has nothing to do with your personal beliefs if you you know again you know if you if you are doing whatever you can to support climate change awesome good for you right this has nothing to do with that what this is about though is is doing the right thing with your money and what we know is, is that there's a lot of companies out there right now, mutual fund companies in particular, that are simply just changing the name of their funds because, well, their performance hasn't been great and money flows into their fund have not been fantastic. And that's how they get paid, right? More money that's in their fund, that's they charge a fee on and that's how they get paid. So what's a good way to increase the fund flows into my mutual fund? I change the name. I am now no longer the large cap blue chip dividend growth fund. I'm now the ESG large cap dividend growth fund. And all of a sudden, people start buying my fund. I get more assets. I charge more fees. Now, did I do anything different with my fund? The answer is no. I didn't change any holdings. I didn't do anything differently. I just changed the name of the fund. And that's exactly what's happening in the markets right now and has been happening. And in fact, not only are these companies changing their name, but not changing any of their holdings, they're also raising the fees. Companies that have now changed their fund names to an ESG-related fund are charging as much as three times more for the same exact fund and management. Nothing actually changed. Of course, this has been a boon for the mutual fund industry, the ETF, ETF industry as well, because... Over the course of the last decade, there's been one ongoing trend of the markets, which has been this fee compression, right? I mean, everybody wants cheaper trading. We want free trades. We want low-cost ETF. Paper after paper after paper have been written about the importance of low fees because the more you pay in fees, the less money that you make over time. And buying a high-cost fund or a high-cost ETF eats up you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of your returns over the course of your lifetime. Low fees, right? Vanguard has uh, dominated that entire space with low fee ETFs as an example. So fees are important. But it's also how companies get paid. And the lower that fee goes, the more they have to try to sell in order to generate the fees to pay for their costs and the profit margins and, of course, the uh, executive salaries, etc. So the great thing about ESG is, is that I can now charge you three times as much for the exact same fund. In fact, 
in our previous article called The Wall Street Money Heist, we actually laid out the differential between a BlackRock ESG ETF and the S&P index. In the top 10 holdings, there was only one difference in the top 10 holdings, and that was the addition of BlackRock in the BlackRock ETF. In other words, they had their own stock in the top 10 holdings. Now, why would a company do that? Well, if I'm an executive, if I'm Larry Fink at BlackRock with my four houses, three Gulf Streams, and 12 limos, um, you know, with a very small carbon footprint, um, I want to make sure that the stock price of BlackRock goes up because that's how I get compensated through stock options. So by putting BlackRock into the top 10 holdings of my ESG ETF, well, now I ensure that my company stock is being bid up so that the price continues to rise. But more importantly, that same BlackRock ESG ETF charges four times what the S&P 500 charges for a Vanguard S&P ETF. So you're paying four times as much. But again, you're getting an ESG fund, right? So performance must be markedly better than the S&P since we're investing in ESG funds. It, it, it should be better performance, particularly if I'm paying three and four times as much for the same fund. Reality was not the case. In fact, the correlation between the BlackRock ESG fund, which has the same top 10 holdings as the S&P index, surprisingly, performed just like the S&P index. So you're paying for a fund in name. Makes you feel good about yourself, right? You're investing in ESG funds. But you're basically getting an S&P index fund. Now, who actually benefits? Now, now, is you buying the ESG ETF doing anything for the environment? The answer is no. What are you doing? Well, you're ensuring that money flows into BlackRock continue to go up, which is how Larry Fink gets compensated. So he can buy an additional Gulfstream or additional limo or additional house. But again, you buying an ESG fund does nothing to change the outcome for the environment, does nothing to change climate change. Companies don't even know, and this is one of the attitudes, is, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm buying this particular company because I'm buying shares of that company because I want to make sure that they are ESG compliant and they're doing the right things for the, for the economy and for, and for the climate. You buy Apple stock, I, again, back to our example, I buy Apple stock from Brent. Brent sells me his shares. I give him my cash. Apple doesn't even know that exists. <laughs> Apple's not even aware that transaction occurred. So they're not going to go change their policy based upon you buying or selling an ETF, which is another step removed from the actual stock exchange transaction itself. So again, it does nothing to influence the companies to be more socially responsible or more climate responsible. It does not. They don't even know that a transaction occurs. But what it does do is enrich in those that provide those funds. So again, what will happen? And this is the prediction. In fact, it's already starting to occur. These ESG funds will begin to underperform the S&P index. In fact, these ESG funds will begin to underperform other asset classes. And when they do, investors will go to chase those asset classes. ESG funds will flow out of ESG funds into other asset classes. And eventually, over the course of the next few years, ESG, like SIN stocks, will be a passe investment trial that we once did. Be right back after the break.
Tough travel over the weekend. You were trying to travel out of Dallas in particular, which is the hub for American Airlines. Uh, you know, just recently we talked about the problem for Southwest Airlines, of course, having to shut down thousands of flights for lack of, they said weather at the time, and it was also a lack of attendance and pilots, et cetera, that were kind of all shut down. Thousands of flights canceled, obviously putting travelers at, at uh, great, you know, discomfort to try to get them to where they're, you know, we're trying to go Amer over the weekend. American Airlines experiencing, ironically, the exact same problem. Um, apparently, there was high winds in Dallas and a lack of attendance to uh, fill the flights. And you know, thousands of uh, you know, over a thousand flights have been canceled up this point. It's going to continue on to today as well. But again, uh, American Airlines uh, canceled 1,400 flights over the weekend. So if you're trying to get somewhere over the weekend, you are probably disappointed and might not have gotten there. Now. This is, a, this is going to be interesting to watch because if this is happening now, just wait until we get into the real travel season. This isn't even travel season yet, right? This is just Halloween. And, you know, when we get into, you know, Thanksgiving, and then, of course, we've got to go to Grandma's house, you know, over the hill and through the woods. You know, we got to go to Grandma's house for Christmas. Well, you know, this is going to become a much bigger problem. Now, again, both airlines have said that this is absolutely has nothing to do with the vaccine mandate. Although Southwest has now said they are not going to be firing their employees over the vaccine mandate. <laughs> so even though it had nothing to do with it, they've now changed their stance on that policy. But, <laughs> you know, this is going to be one of the issues kind of coming up. But again, watch what's going on here, because, again, you know, the airlines have been struggling to try to get back to some level of normalcy really ever since the pandemic driven shutdown have not really been able to do that to a great degree. You know, traffic is still lighter than it was previous to the pandemic. And now you're having all these problems trying to get, you know, flights running for a variety of reasons. And uh, again, we're moving into one of the busier traveling seasons at this point. So, and again, with people feeling a lot more comfortable uh, because they're vaccinated or wearing a mask or whatever it is, or just the fact that the Delta variant is now starting to recede rather rapidly, even though we're in a period of time where we should be seeing an increase in cases because we're now back into getting into colder weather. We should be seeing cases go up, but the Delta variant's actually going away. Um, you know, this is going to be a, a continued issue for airlines trying to get back to some level of normalcy. So again, it's interesting to watch what's going on um, as we do that. And again, as I, as I said a second ago, you know, we're in to the part of the year where we should be seeing cases for the flu and, of course, for the Delta variant of COVID rising because we're in to the colder winter weather where these viruses tend to survive better than they do in warmer winter, uh, warmer weather. Um, U.S. COVID, this headline this morning on CNBC, U.S. COVID cases fall to less than half of the peak Delta levels as the country approaches holiday season. So, See, good news there. Uh, the U.S. is reporting an average of 72,000 new cases per day over the past week, according to Johns Hopkins. Uh, that's down 58% from the recent high. Now, remember, the recent high mark occurred in the summer where you normally have weaker rates of infection because of the warmer weather, right? Viruses don't like warm weather, so they tend to infection rates tend to fall. But now we're moving into colder weather. We should be seeing those rates go up, but no, we're actually seeing those fall. So that's good news 
Uh, so that means that, you know, people should feel more comfortable about traveling, that they should feel more comfortable about going to holiday gatherings and events because between vaccinations and less infection rates, this is all good news. So a couple of things this bodes well for, of course, is retail sales. Um, as we get into the last part of the year, more people buying, you know, going to family's house to have, you know, Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas dinner, whatever it is, you got to go buy stuff. You got to go buy food. Uh, you know, to have, uh, you know, these family gatherings. Of course, you know, holiday gift-giving season is coming up. Black Friday started two months ago. So people have been out shopping, trying to get ahead of the um, the whole supply chain issue at this point. So we've seen a lot of money going into retail sales. But again, retail sales are expected to be very ebullient uh, this year as people are kind of getting back to work here. We'll, we'll see, you know, how this all works out. Uh, there was an interesting chart out this morning uh, looking at real versus nominal sales, in other words, spending. And what's interesting is, is that we see a lot of the, and the reason I'm you know, talking about retail sales example, uh, you know, if you take a look at nominal sales, personal consumption expenditures, right? Nominal, that's non-inflation adjusted. So we look take a look at that. That level remains well above the pre-COVID trend. Of course, you know a lot of that spike in sales came from you know the fourteen hundred dollars checks to households, extended unemployment benefits, et cetera, so forth and so on. All that extra cash we gave people, they went out and spent that money. So that was good news. So people are obviously buying more stuff. Well, you got to be careful with that because once you take a look at inflation. Sales have now come back to the pre-COVID trend line, which is about 2% growth for the economy, which is about where third quarter GDP was. Now, what does that mean? Why is one number higher and one number lower after you adjust for inflation? What that means is, is, is the, what we've been saying here on the show for a while, is that inflation is problematic from the standpoint of consumers being able to afford more stuff, right? So, if things cost more, then I have to buy less. And that's what that data shows is that the nominal sales are still well above trend. But when you get to real after inflation adjusted sales, now you're back at the normal trend. So in other words, what that says is, is that, in, that individuals, because of inflation, they're not buying more stuff, right? They're buying the same amount of stuff. They're just having to pay more for it. And if you've gone out to price stuff at all lately... <laughs> uh, it's expensive. Um, coffee, cup of coffee has gone up markedly. If you want to go buy breakfast, breakfast has the cost of breakfast has risen by over 40% over the course of just the last few months, right? So, you know, go out to, you know, get pancakes at IHOP, you're paying more for them, right? It's just, and the cost of eating out, if you go out to eat, the, the cost of that tab is going up. And it really doesn't matter what you look at, it's whether it's apparel or whether it's gasoline prices or food prices, it's all going up. My wife, uh, of course, she is in her best time of the year season right now because as we've talked about, she's been anxiously awaiting today. Today is the day. It's on. It is on. It is Christmas decoration, <laughs> right? Although she she did falter a bit yesterday. Oh? She, she did falter. She went to... Uh, TJ Maxx yesterday mm -hmm. to go buy a, some picture frames because we had some family photos done and she wanted to get picture frames for them. Yeah. And she came home with two candy bowls. 
one it's the bottom half of an elf and the other is the bottom half of santa claus right so it's just the feet and you put the the candy or cookies or whatever right. inside the bowls and so it's a visual thing it's a visual thing you have to you, yeah you have to actually see it but the point is is she wanted to have these for you know christmas cookies and stuff for when the family comes over because yeah. we're having christmas at our house this, this year they were out on the on halloween <laughs> right <laughs> Filled with Halloween candy, but they were out. So she she did stumble a little bit, but today is the day she's very excited because she's going to break out the Christmas trees when she gets home and start to decorate for Christmas. Oh, she didn't take the day off. No, no, not yet. <laughs> that may be coming. <laughs> but per- she is personal day. She is she is, but she is fired up. But this is but this is the point, right? This is that time of the year where people start buying stuff to decorate and to do all this and get ready for the holidays, and you know so. Invest and individuals should be my more, but but the story of TJ Maxx is the example. Is she went to TJ Maxx yesterday, and so she's shopping. But you know, at the store, the shelves were mostly bare. Uh, most of the stuff she was looking for was not in stock, and this is this is back to that supply chain issue, right? When you go out and look at ports, there's lots of stuff sitting at the port container ships. In fact, the the port of LA has now told owners of the containers that they have now overstayed their welcome at the port. Um, you can't store stuff at the port. Like you can't use the port of LA as your storage bin, right? And just leave stuff sitting there. You have a time frame that you've got to get it off. Otherwise you start paying a penalty, $100 a day. The people that own the containers are going, so? Because the cost of those containers has risen dramatically. I mean, the people that own those containers that are renting them out they're making so much money on them. Who cares, right? You're paying me to have that container. So that container can sit there until the world ends, and I'll pay an extra $100 a day because I'm getting 500 times that amount for renting it out to whoever's using the container. So I don't care how long it sits there. I get paid for it sitting there. A three-month a three month rental on a container costs as much as 68 Ferraris right now, just to put it into context. So that's why the cost of everything is going up. But why can't we not get these, these containers off the port? Lack of drivers. Companies are paying in excess of six figures a year for truck drivers right now. If you've got a CDL license, you can make more than $120,000 a year going to drive a truck. Go see the world. Go drive the country. Make $120,000 a year delivering containers. But this is the problem. Now, here's, you know, now, so, but with that, why, why do we not have people driving trucks? Why aren't people just lined up to drive trucks? Because in a lot of cases, unless you're a union driver, you own your own truck and you pay about 90% of the expenses. To go to the Port of L.A., pick up a container and leave the Port of L.A., that can take as much as 12 hours. There's three lines you have to go through at the Port of L.A., one to get in, one to pick up your container, one to check out. Those lines, you can spend between 8 and 12 hours to pick up one container and drive out with it. And for a lot of drivers that own their own trucks, it's not worth it because they're they're not paid enough for that one container to spend 12 hours. They get the, they get the same amount of pay whether it's a three-day journey or a one-day journey. If they spend a whole day at the port, that's a day they don't get paid for. So unless you're a union driver... That gets paid regardless. You get paid by the hour, regardless of where, wherever you sit. That's the problem. And that's why there's not enough drivers. And that's why the supply chain issue is not going to end anytime soon. In fact, it's a topic we're going to pick up here again tomorrow.
So tune in then. Thanks for joining us. Our first day back on The Real Investment Show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Get by our website. Our new article on ESG investing and the Department of Labor putting them into your 401k plan is a terrible idea. I explained to you why today in our blog post on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow. Have a great day. It's a rich man's world.